got a few slides to accompany the talk. Just a few. So yeah, it's great to be uh, back here. I, I had a um, yeah really formative several years. Uh, as you only said in um, in Manchester, I lived upstairs and um, was training for ordination. So I've got a lot of very good memories of this building and and this this shrine room as well, actually. So yeah, although I moved away some time ago, it's still very much with me. This building and things and the, and a lot of the people here. So I'm very pleased to be here. So yeah, my talk is. Um, is called um, a body at peace with itself. So this is um, a representation of the famous Tibetan master of the 14th and 15th century, Tsongkhapa. And he wrote this, um, the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body, it is yours this time only. The human form is one with difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore set your goal, make use of every day and night, to achieve it. So this talk is going to be uh, mainly concerned with just the first line of that, um, the human body at peace with itself. So I'm going to, in this talk tonight I want to explore different perspectives on what actually is uh, the human body and what it could mean to be at peace with itself. But firstly, um, I just want to uh, give you uh, one of my share one of my memories of my early childhood. It was one of the st- strongest memories I had, and I woke up. I don't know. I must have been about seven or eight, but I woke up in the middle of the night feeling quite uh, frightened and fearful. And every so often that would happen, and um, I'd l- one of the immediate instincts was to put the light on, you know, to make sure nothing frightening was there. Um, so I had this torch next to my bed. So I woke up one night and I can still remember it. Frightened, I reached for the torch. I put the torch on, and then um, it, it lit up the ceiling. And directly above me in my bed was this huge spider. Uh, It was about that big. And it was directly above me, and it was kind of crawling um, across the um, ceiling. So I just, I remember just freezing uh, with fear, really. And just not, and just disbelieving the scale of this spider and the fact it was directly above my head. I can't remember how long I was in that kind of frozen state for, with my, you know, striped pyjamas on and things. But um, there came a point where my perspective shifted, and I looked away, and I looked down to the torch, and then I saw there was this, like, tiny little uh, spider on the um, front of the torch itself. And with that new perspective, you know, uh, there was waves of relief. (laughs) And... um, relaxation and I no longer saw what was on the ceiling in the same way although in some ways it was the same thing I just interpreted it differently and so 
in a way, that sort of spirit is like part of what I'm trying to evoke tonight is that we have in our mainstream culture certain um, ideas about what the body is, and if we hold to them very tightly and narrowly, then it may uh, restrict us experiencing other dimensions of the body that don't fit in with that kind of conceptual model. Um, so tonight I'm going to give some alternative conceptual models of what the body is from the Buddhist um, tradition. But first I just wanted to say a little bit about sort of our inherited Western scientific materialist view of what the human body is. So from this perspective it's broadly obvious uh, what the body is. We have many facts. Our body is bounded by skin... We have organs, bones. The human body has evolved over thousands of years to the conditions that maximises its survival. We are born, we grow, we age, and at some point we die. At which point the brain and the consciousness it supports dies with it. And in our Western culture, we tend to see the body and the mind as separate things. You know, the mind tends to be associated with the head, and then the body is kind of like um, the rest of our being, really, um, as separate. And consciousness is often seen as arising from, uh, what is it, 100 billion or so neurons. So it's kind of arising from the physicality of the brain. And... We have got an amazing understanding of the physical body that's built up from this. Could we have the next? Yeah. So um, I won't go into this, but this is um, 12 different systems of the body. So we've got the digestive, the respiratory, the urinary, the reproductive, and so on. You know, we know obviously a fantastic amount of the human biology and functioning of the body. I was reading um, that apparently a team of researchers in 2013 um, tried to calculate how many human cells are in an average human body. I'm not quite sure what an average human body is, but they had a measurement for that. And they estimated there are 37 trillion uh, human cells. And it's been estimated, although they're um, smaller in size, we have at least as many, maybe even many times more bacterial cells uh, in our body as human cells. Um, and the next slide, it will show... Um, this is um, one human cell. So this is the plotted, um, absorbed reactions in one human cell. Bearing in mind we've got 37 trillion of these. And uh, it may be over time that more reactions are discovered. So it's just what we were able to observe. There's all these fascinating facts I came across, like humans and chimpanzees share 97% of the same DNA. And humans and cabbages share between 40 and 50% of the same DNA. So we know so much about the physical body. Um, so much clinical practice, our hospitals, our medical training. All focuses on the biological body or the physical body. But in this talk I want to explore, is this, human bo- is this, is this body of human biology all we are? Are we just a vast collection of cells bordered by the skin? Do we stop at the skin? And is the consciousness, awareness, produced by the biochemistry of the body, and especially the brain? So these are big questions. 
And I want to start a bit with my own journey into Buddhist practice. So, um, one of the early texts I came across with my practice was the Satipatthana Sutta. So that's from the Pali Canon. So some of the earliest teachings that were recorded of the Buddha. And this is... um, some ancient texts of the Pali Canon um, written down and preserved. But in the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha said this, This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for the attainment of the right method, and for the realisation of nirvana. In other words, the four foundations of mindfulness. A monk remains focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. He remains focused on feelings, mind, mental qualities, in and of themselves ardent, alert and mindful putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world so the text goes on but this is a key opening section of the text and this is possibly one of the most famous most practiced texts in the whole of Buddhism so there's this importance on being mindful of the body its feelings the mind and mental qualities so I, as Satchamuni was saying, I first came across Buddhism in the late 90s and at that time I had quite a hectic life. Uh, and yeah, I was in the planning department of the uh, town hall here. So um, I've got some responsibility for some of the decisions that were made uh, in South Birmingham. Um, it was a stressful job um, and I wasn't really aware of my body and I wasn't even aware that I wasn't aware. Um, and I remember I used to rush over here uh, weekly for a yoga, yoga class upstairs with um, Padma Darshani. Um, and in the class, she'd check in with us every so often and say, you know, like, where are people experiencing this asana, you know, this position that we've moved into? And I remember feeling really embarrassed and confused because, like, people around me were saying, oh, there's a slight kind of tingling sensation, you know, in my left elbow, and um, I can feel these waves of heat moving down my right leg. And, um, and all I could feel was this sense of numbness and, at times, tightness and a sort of pain at times. Uh, and it was then, I, in a way, I realised that my, it was like my body was another country, you know, that I rarely travelled into. And when I did, I couldn't really feel much. Um, and yet maybe this isn't that unusual for people starting out in practice, or maybe even people who've been practicing for a while, to feel quite alienated from just a physical felt sense of what their body feels like. Um, so with, with yoga, um, I became aware that I wasn't aware which was a first step. And looking back now, I probably think it was my quite fast and quite frenzied pace of life and a lot of heady stimulation, all those planning applications and counsellors and things I had to deal with, um, that sort of dissociated me from a feeling relationship with the body as as I lived like that over years. 
And we also know, we know now from brain scans that part of the brain that can receive what's going on in the body can also restrict thoughts felt. So if the body, for example, judges an experience to be too much to process, and if this happens a lot, the actual part of the brain that receives the um, sensations from the body uh, can close temporarily and chronically if um, it's continually overwhelming. And this is a form of controlling and managing the plane, the pain, uh, like a shop, a ship closing off sections uh, that are flooded with water. So often that dissociation or cutting off from the body is like a form of defence um, that's useful at the time, uh, but it can become a chronic condition. So becoming more aware of my body, I became more aware of how tense it was. Um, and some of this tension I was discovering was from emotional pain that I wasn't, uh, habitually hadn't allowed myself to feel. My body habitually just tightened um, against it and got locked into that habitual bracing. And I also came to realise that that tension in my body was also um, stifling me feeling more pleasant, open feelings uh, and sensations as well. So it was a bit like a river that was bunged up with weeds, logs and shopping trolleys. The flow of emotional life, of energy, feeling and sensation was stifled. Um, and it was only in the years to come that, uh, through practice, I created some inner safety, uh, inner sense of safety for this tension to ease and for the pain to be able to stir and start to surface and start to be felt and integrated. So, um, some of you will know Paramananda. He, this lovely quote, I love this quote. Um, this is from one of his books. He says, In this process of moving away from self-obsession and worry towards openness and compassion, it's vital to fundamentally reconnect with ourselves. And this means reawakening the body as an instrument of feeling, sensation and aliveness. By paying kind attention to our bodies, our awareness is encouraged to explore our own underworld, where the riches of our lives are to be found. In the body and in the heart, we open to the complex nature of our being, and through this experience of our multifarious nature, we gain sympathy for others. And I was finding through Buddhist practice that this alienation was gradually being reversed. My body was a reawakening again. Um, and it was an ongoing process of learning to turn towards and be with just the fleeting moment by moment felt sense of the body. But it was a slow, slow process and still is. And involves a lot of resistance um, with some breakthroughs keeping me motivated. So, um, in 2005, I went here, um, which is in um, eastern Spain, um, Guia Loca, um, and that's where I was ordained, so I was lucky to spend four months there, um, which was quite a transformative time for me, um, a lot of intense practice and study and ritual. 
And then I came back, I was living, before that I was living uh, upstairs, and I came back upstairs, um, but I felt very different about living here. Um, I left the beauty and simplicity of these mountains, and uh, I felt like I'd come back to a sort of frenzied pool of shopping, drinking, and business. Um, now, before I went to Spain, um, on one level, this, that felt a bit dazzling and alluring. You know, I was quite excited about living uh, in the city centre, um, like I was in the kind of peak of the action. But when I came back from Spain, I just thought, I don't really want to be here, really. So um, it didn't make sense to me anymore. So I decided to move to the hills and... Um, uh, I moved to Vadraloka, um, which many of you will know is a retreat centre in the Cluidian Hills in um, North Wales. So um, it's only about an hour and a half or so from here. does very good retreats and things. Um, so that's one image on it, and I've got another image, I think. Um, there we go. So that's the community house where it's a really uh, exquisitely beautiful place. The weather isn't always like that. Um, and my lifestyle here changed really dramatically. So um, it wouldn't be unusual for me to be meditating eight hours a day here. We did a lot of intense, silent retreats. My life really, really over time slowed down. So I had great conditions for meditation, really, and I continued this process of exploring the body and deepening into the body, uh, sort of guided by the teachings uh, of the Buddha. And in particular, you know, so much of our self-view and identity is tied up with this individual form, isn't it? You know, um, but what is the body in and of itself? experience without the veil and distortions of any assumptions, views and opinions, you know, all the culture or ideas we have about the body. What is it when we just sit with a clear mind and just experience it without distraction? And that was what I wanted to move towards. And the mindfulness of breathing and just sitting provided very helpful practices to explore this. And my direct experience of the body did start to open out and change. And in pursuit of that, I started to get interested in alternative non-Western, more Eastern Buddhist, and particularly Tibetan concepts and teachings on what is the nature of the body um, in direct experience. And what I found was that for many centuries, uh, Eastern traditions have assumed a much more integrated model between body and mind than we used to in the West. They offer a third alternative at a sort of quasi-material level that is intermediate between conventional Western concepts of body and mind. And this is often referred to as a subtle body. And whilst the models differ, the basic concept I found um, exists across traditions from Asia, um, from Taoism to Buddhism to Sufism and so on. And just for homing down on the ancient teachings of Tibetan Buddhism and traditional Tibetan medicine, the physical body too is just one dimension. level or aspect of the human body and the grossest level at that. According to the Tibetan Buddhist system, we house a subtle body within the physical body, so to speak. 
and it's subtle in the sense it doesn't have a physical density like bone or say an artery but it can be felt and known and it's sometimes compared in quality to light and energy apparent but not physical and the Tibetan, the Tibetan view as found in many Tibetan tantras uh, teachings is that the subtle body has three main elements so we've got quite a wacky picture there um, so this is quite important um, in the Tibetan system well very important really so the first element is the winds or the lung is the Tibetan um, and that equates to more familiar terms for some of us um, to a more familiar term the Sanskrit prana or life force and in Chinese that's chi uh, as in qigong or tai chi subtle energy and from now on I will I'll refer to um, the winds, prana and subtle energy interchangeably so they mean the same thing, same phenomenon now this isn't the same energy, um, the winds and the prana and the chi as what we might get from nutrition uh, after eating something from the breakdown of food it has links with the energy of nutrition but is more linked with the breath and more widely a universal life force that we are inseparable from so we're kind of starting to stray a bit now from normal western ways of seeing things this other dimension we have this prana energy and um, I don't actually know how to uh, pronounce this word Um, and I couldn't find it anywhere on the internet it's a Tibetan word but it's spelled T-S-A the Sanskrit equivalent is Nadi um, and we can translate that as channels or pathways the energy channels the energy travels so there's the prana and then there's the um, Nadis the Sanskrit which is what the energy travels through and the most important channel is the central channel and you can see that here um, starting at the roots and then going right up um, beyond the crown and yeah there's tens of thousands of these channels through the body and this is just one system um, of um, working out some of the roots of those channels and um, along the central channel are interspersed um, what we may have heard of a lot is channel wheels or chakras as they're often called and this is where the nadis or channels converge and these are sort of psychic energy roundabouts so um, often um, you've got the root there the that's called yeah, the shackle channel. It's often called the hara, the solar plexus, the heart, the throat, the third eye, and the crown. So it's a kind of focus of where the um, the prana, um, the chi energy, um, congregates. And you've got all these channels here, the nadi channels, um, moving around inside and outside the body. So Lama Govinda, a friend of spiritual friend of Sangharachita, said the chakras are points in which psychic forces and bodily functions merge into each other and penetrate each other. They are the focal points in which cosmic and psychic energies crystallise into body qualities and in which body qualities are dissolved or transmuted again into psychic forces. So there's a strong link there between these energies and our states of mind. And then the third element um, of the subtle body in the Tibetan system is the um, drops, which are like very, very subtle aspects of the prana energy. 
So whereas in our scientific model the uh, mind is um, synonymous with the brain largely, from the Tibetan perspective the mind actually travels riding on these wind or prana energies through the myriad of channels which extend across the whole body. So this is the integrated model of um, body and mind. And so to the extent the winds, the winds flow unobstructed and harmoniously without dis- obstruction, there is health, prosperity and clarity of mind. But to the extent the winds move in a disturbed way or are blocked, the mind and the body become disturbed and illness arises. So in the Tibetan tradition this is called lung disorder or distorted winds. So in Tibetan Buddhist circles, this this subtle body is a core aspect of human experience and having an understanding of it and deepening experience of it is a core aspect of Buddhist practice, a key component of the path and liberation. If the subtle body is mastered, the mind can be freed, catalyzing enlightenment. And this is one example of a Tibetan practice that works directly on the subtle body called the Tumo practice or inner fire practice. There's a long tradition of monks um, uh, going out and sitting on snow in icy landscapes with wet towels and um, seeing how many wet towels they can dry up purely through cultivating prana, this life force energy in them that and that prana burns up blockages in the channels that generates heat and the heat dries the towels so it goes back a very long way that now I'm aware that talking of a subtle body like this um, can seem far-fetched and um, exotic um, and these kind of um, some of these slides as well may seem old-fashioned um, and it might conjure up auras and colours and third eyes, long hair with flowers and you know, nice kind of dreamy thinking, um, but a world away from everyday experience. Or maybe talk of a subtle body is just for you a medieval pre-scientific stab at how the human mind works. And we now know much better. We now know much better what really is going on. We have an extensive scientific evidence base. And you may be wondering, even if we do have this subtle body, then how is it relevant to practice here in the West today? Or maybe some of you have a sense of this subtle body in your practice um, already and how it's helpful. So if you do want to find out more about the subtle body, I I can recommend Banti's lecture on the symbolism of the Tibetan stupa is a great source, uh, inspirational talk on uh, the energy body and subtle body. Um, and the transformation of psychic energies. But again, I I thought I'd revert now back to some of my own experience in this area, just to try and bring it down to earth a little bit. Um, And for those of you who've been meditating some time, um, much of this might already be familiar. Okay, let's do a little time check. Okay, so um, what happened for me is that after a while when I was at Vajraloka, um, I started to feel like subtle energetic currents. Um, and it was like they were darting around, sometimes wafting uh, around my body. And then I could also feel some kind of resistance or blockage to this movement in parts of my body. 
And when I say currents, experientially, it did feel more like winds, like gushes of subtle wind, um, as described by the Tibetan tradition. What it felt like, as felt from within. Sometimes it was like a gust, sometimes it felt like a current down a tiny corridor, like a streak of energy. And in meditation with this came a sense at times too that I was experiencing my thoughts and emotions much more in my body um, and it was a wide open space, much less defined by the sense of skin um, than I was familiar with. And feeling myself or my centre in this way, expanded way, and, and especially feeling more in my belly, it did feel like this great kind of relief. Um, in a way, like this was how I'm meant to be um, if I'm unfolded. And um, I've been free, it felt like I'd been freed from a cage or some sort of imbalance, you know, that kind of sense to it. And as this unfoldment continued, it was like I was starting to feel emotions more geographically or spatially uh, in my body. So I started to get a sense of anxiety and fear that was, seemed to be largely in the upper belly. And in the lower belly, I might find a sense of confidence, groundedness and strength. And more uncomfortable feelings around poor self-worth. And some big reservoirs of shame, you know, I contacted down in the lower belly. Whilst the heart seemed to be more a place of love and connection, as well as grief, loss and despair. And I was noticing too that this broad sort of um, arrangement of emotions seemed to accord with the position of the chakras as well, you know, as emotional centres of emotional activity. So there was some correspondence with the teachings and my um, experience. And I think for some time we practiced, I sort of had this model that um, practice was like being a plane, a plane on a runway. You know, that basically you start practicing and, and then like a plane it would gradually get into the air and you just sort of lift off and get further and further away from your problems. You know, and uh, the problems would be like somewhere a long way away uh, and that process would continue. But... Um, Actually, what I felt more involved in was a kind of what I call a psychic game of snakes and ladders. So it was like um, my practice in Vajraloka was often um, I dropped down a snake into some sort of painful, unresolved emotional um, material confusion, sit and feel through it as best I could, and eventually it would kind of, with awareness, resolve on some level, and I'd happily ascend up this ladder into a more sort of absorbed dhyanic state but I came to see that the dhyanic state itself um, that state of focus and positivity is exactly what unresolved emotions long for um, that clear attention so it wasn't normally long before a python or a cobra kind of started to appear again um, and um, my body would start to tense and I'd be drawn back to, to, to another layer But a really strong lesson for me at this time was seeing how powerful bringing an open, sensitive, kindly awareness into the body could be. Sooner or later, what it, land, what it alights on is transformed for the better. Whether that's tension, limited thought patterns, or painful emotions. 
So Sanger Axter says awareness is revolutionary. And Bessel van der Kolk, who's one of the, currently one of the world leading experts on trauma, says it slightly differently. He says, once you start approaching your body with curiosity rather than with fear, everything shifts. So I'll just say that once more. Once you start approaching your body with curiosity rather than fear, everything shifts. So yeah, I started to see that when the um, energetic movement shifted um, and released, there would be a lift or a a lightening in mood and emotional state and sense of well-being. And the currents or the winds in my body seemed to be, and how they were moving or not, seemed to be integral to how I was feeling, which I had no knowledge of before. So Albert G. Yorgi, um, Hungarian biochemist, who apparently discovered vitamin C and in 1937 won the Nobel Peace Prize for medicine, said this. In every culture and in every medical tradition before ours, healing was accomplished by moving energy. I didn't know that. In every culture and in every medical tradition before ours, healing was accomplished by moving energy. And I do think it's interesting that many traditions and techniques that are based on the model of a model of the subtle body, such as acupuncture, shiatsu, qigong, tai chi and yoga, and so on, are becoming increasingly popular in the West as they get discovered and experienced. And whole new Western techniques are emerging based around the subtle body now, such as the self-tapping based approach of the emotional freedom technique. And given my experience at Badruloko, I decided to start training in Shen therapy, um, which is another new Western alternative therapy that focuses on bringing shifts to the subtle body for healing. So this approach uses light touch and was pioneered oddly enough, by an American physicist called Richard Pavick. So there's me with one of my clients. Um, And you can see my hand underneath this. I'm working on this this client's throat. And this system works through the movement of prana or chi between the the two hands. So energy tends to be sent from the, um, what's called the sending hand, and then received into the left hand. So um, that's a picture of me at work. So earlier I mentioned that the degree the winds move in a disturbed way, the mind and body become disturbed and illness arises. And that the Tibetans call a disturbed system, lung disorder or distorted winds. And I just want to go on now and I want to suggest a very, very common form of lung disorder that I think we have in our modern society. Yeah, thanks. So in 19... (laughs) Looks like something from Hitchcock, doesn't it? Um, so in 1947, W.H. Auden 
published his dramatic poem, The Age of Anxiety, about man's quest to find substance and identity in a shifting and increasingly industrialised world. And this title was subsequently taken up to characterise the consciousness of our era, anxiety. And we know anxieties maybe run higher than ever today. Um, International politics, places and pressures of life, how we look in the mirror, um, nuclear war, climate change, terrorism and so on. Now prana in the form of anxious energy um, tends to want to move upwards in the body. You know, with anxiety, the energy tends to want to move upwards. And in particular to the upper half of the body above the diaphragm. And if we think of the symptom anxieties, people often describe symptoms of their, you know, feeling there's a lot of energy in their head. Um, Manic, unstoppable, restless thinking, headaches, tension in the jaw and forehead. And with my, in my clients' work, um, it's often really noticeable with clients who have very strong anxiety that when they close their eyes and lie down, their eyes, they can't stop their eyelids flittering. It's like there's so much energy that's in the, in the head. There's often a lot of tension in the belly, you know, so the breathing's happening in the, in the chest area, and a lot of the feeling is just in the upper body, above the diaphragm. So I'm suggesting that one way of seeing these symptoms is a wind energy imbalance due to the Tibetan system, with a chronic and stuck state of energy pooling in, above the diaphragm, and things have gone out of a more healthy whole balance, whole body flow and balance. So we know there are many ways we can help ourselves to become less anxious, um, such as changing lifestyle, slowing down, going for walks in nature, simplifying our lives. But here I want to I just want to focus on a few things that I think can help um, that will work de- very de- directly on the subtle energy body and bring more balance. So with this, an important principle is that subtle energy or prana follows where your attention is. Um, and we can often see this simply through focusing on our hands for a while. You know, if we bring awareness into our hands and feel our hands, you might sense that actually they're getting energised and you can feel more um, as you bring awareness into them. So where attention can be used to redirect energy, subtle energy... And a regular practice of directing attention down into the lower belly will therefore over time gradually help redress this, this pooling. This may, for example, take the form of placing more emphasis on feeling the ground as well in meditation, feeling the floor and the stillness of the ground. And I don't mean thinking or imagining the ground, I mean actually feeling the contact moment by moment. And we also have as a core practice the mindfulness of breathing. So notice where you're following the breath in that practice. And my suggestion is that if you struggle with stress and anxiety, try placing your focus on feeling right down um, below the belly button, ideally to the hara, which in most people is the belt line, which is uh, often seen as a home of prana. You know, it sits right in the centre of our being. So bringing the... the um, Panel more down to our centre. And attention might easily get thrown out of here. It might be hard to keep the attention down there just because habitually it's used to going in other grooves. A bit like keeping a beach ball underwater. But 
with practice and dedication it can become established and the system will rebalance from there. And this is really emphasised in Zen Buddhism. The Hara is continually emphasised, heavily emphasised in Zen Buddhism. And similarly with the last stage of the mindfulness of breathing where you put the attention on a focus point, you could pick somewhere lower down. You know, if, if the attention, if there's already so much energy pooling in the head and you've got manic thinking, um, I suggest that, that could make it worse, focusing on the nostrils. <laughs> um, something to explore anyway. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, yeah, one other aspect of the subtle body and its energies I wanted to touch on is that of um, issues and experiences that can arise as we start to free up blocked or frozen uh, prana energy. And just as when a river that's dammed up with ice starts to melt, it's not always a nice steady flow of water downstream. Um, so too as practice energises the subtle energy body, brings it to life, starts to clear blockages and tension. The releasing energy isn't always smooth and steady. And there can be unexpected or choppy side effects. And for years I've had meditation reviews with people and they, you know, every so often you come across uh, someone who is struggling with this. And it can be a bit odd and unsettling. Sometimes the energy releases can be quite strong uh, and powerful and can evoke fear and confusion. Uh, particularly if there isn't a context to help that be understood. And people can also be reluctant to mention things in this area for fear of not being understood or feeling odd. And that fear can complicate what is actually quite a healthy, positive process happening. So I just want to say a bit more about this, and in particular mention some common things that can happen. And again, firstly starting with some things that happened in my own practice. So... um, after I'd been at Vajraloka for some time, um, I started, the winds that I mentioned started to get very strong um, and the movement of energy around my body. And um, I wasn't just contacting these in meditation. What started to happen was that I was being awoken at night by kind of strong storms of energy moving uh, around my body and kind of trawling up different emotions and memories and things uh, with them. On a felt sense, it felt healing and positive, but my mind um, wasn't quite sure what was happening and even whether what was happening was good for me, so I was confused. So I went to see Sangharakshita for uh, some advice. This is when he was living in Birmingham. And amongst other things, he said, for some at times, the subtle body can undergo quite a restructuring. And an offshoot of this can be strong, sometimes chaotic, energies arising. I do, I do want to make um, what I think is a really important point here, and that is that um, the energetic fireworks that can arise, or lesser symptoms, are not in themselves any sign of uh, real attainment in terms of ethics, wisdom and meditation. That uh, many wise people seem to have none of these energetic phenomena, and many people who are not at all wise or integrated um, have a lot of them. Um, but generally, I do see prana movements and releases um, as an encouraging sign that things are changing and stuck energy is freeing up, and it paves the way for better ethics, meditation, and wisdom if negotiated well. 
and it does tend to be a phase for people that, that just it's a period of time that this happens for some and then things settle down and we know right at the most extreme end of this is Kundalini, you know, the volcanic forces of um, Kundalini. So, but a few specific things come up regularly in retreats. I just wanted to touch on these um, briefly that people can have. One is um, um, spontaneous physical movement. So, I don't know if you've ever been in the shrine room and somebody sorts to, seems to be doing this um, or it's like they're kind of their head's kind of arching at an odd angle or they might be slightly kind of rocking um, and this is often when prana is stirring and it's getting a strength where it starts to move the physical body recently I heard a Theravadan monk talk about how common this is on retreat and he described it as the body moving to help open the energy channels and at a mile end, this could be a gradual, almost imperceptible twisting of the torso or the neck, a slight contortion of the face, um, rocking, some hands moving, sometimes and arms a bit erratically. And the general advice to this is just let the body do what it wants to do. Let the prana animate you, even if it, if it arises and trust it. And if you fear that the movement, you know, you feel uncomfortable doing that with other people or you feel you might disrupt others, it's quite common for people just to, during these phases just to meditate alone until things calm down. So a natural tendency, you know, looking at the Buddha there, very kind of um, tranquil, might be just try and force yourself to sit still and resist any movement at all uh, in sitting. But my sense is that if it's a prana movement that's trying to form here, um, that that can add to tension and slow um, the process of energetic freeing that's trying to happen. And it's probably worth mentioning too that this isn't the same as the desire for movement that can come just when you're feeling restless, you know, um, as a hindrance, where we attempt to keep moving as it's difficult to sit with what we're feeling. This is more like a spontaneous, outside of the ego sense, the body wants to kind of just twist a bit or the face just wants to sort of slightly go into a slight shape and things. Or the hand wants to just sort of twitch a bit. So there's, there's that spontaneous movement. And then there's bolts and bursts of energy. You know, it's like you might have seen that in the shrine room. We might have experienced that. You just suddenly feel a, like a charge. Um, and it often feels like it's coming up the centre of the body. We have that shushima, the central channel. It's often this sudden jewel. And it can throw the head back. Um, so um, that's something else that can just happen as well. Okay, let's just. Um, okay. So, um, yes, I mean, sometimes one pitfall with this, if there is quite a lot of energetics, is that you can get. It, it, some people can fall into a slight kind of messiah complex um, where they can feel that what's happening um, is a real indication of some lofty. Um, attainment. So just as the energy can go to your head, it can go to your head um, in other ways, in terms of feeling a bit inflated or superior or even awakened. Um, sometimes it's accompanied by ecstatic feelings and emotions and things uh, that can couple with the energy. 
Um, and I remember myself when energetics in my meditation got very strong. I wanted to talk all the time about this aspect of my practice, uh, and I'd, I'd, I'd be feeling that others would be as captivated by it um, as I was. And I remember feeling I've made a huge stride on the path, and uh, I knew much more suddenly than others. And of course, after the ecstasy came the laundry, um, and a lot of it. And uh, looking back now, I can see that I was appropri- the ego in me was appropriating the experiences, um, and there wasn't enough awareness to see that's what I was doing. Um, so yeah, look out for getting a bit intoxicated. I mean, whether it's lively energetics or you know um, attainment in the dhyanas or other peak experiences. They tend to just arise and pass. And it did feel like a period of accelerated positive change as well. You know, I did feel like I was changing um, in that period as well. I did feel like that period helped me shed and weaken habits. But I definitely wasn't the Messiah or the Buddha. Okay. So the final bit on this is sometimes um, um, when there's a lot of energy movement in meditation, it can be accompanied by a lot of emotional upheaval. Um, the prana being closely entwined, entwined with the emotions and thoughts. So, um, yeah. So in periods such as that, I mean, keeping in touch with your friends and teachers can really help. Um, and keeping life as simple as possible and not getting too busy, because there's so much inner processing um, that's happening. So, um, just returning to the title of this talk, A Body at Peace with Itself. Um, For the enlightened person, this this subtle body is a realm of conflict. And it's a conflict between prana, the energy, whose innate momentum is to flow freely, and the blockages it meets in the channels which obstruct that flow. The mindfulness of breathing, the metabhavana, just sitting and other practices all work on this level, whether we're aware of it or not. So, um, coming towards the end now, just a few more things. Um, in the Tibetan tradition, visualization um, is also seen as a particularly effective way of cultivating movement and healing in the subtle body. And in sadhana practice, sadhana practice, which order members take on when they are ordained, visualization is also used. So here we may imagine ourselves as an awakened being, a body of light in the form of a bodhisattva, with open flowing chakras and even energy channels in a boundless blue sky. Or such a figure is maybe above us and raining down its blessings on us, purifying us in the process. So we imagine the ideal, and the ideal is imbued with and radiating spiritual qualities. And this can help activate and energise the subtle body. So in a way it becomes less subtle in experience 
as it's cultivated through practice. Now traditionally as the subtle body and its blockages is strengthened, subtle body is strengthened and cleared of blockages, and the practice of ethics and meditation is taken deeper and deeper, an even subtler dimension of the body starts to be experienced, even subtler than the subtle body. We are now on the cusp of what Sangharaksha has called the inconceivable emancipation or Buddhahood. So words will start to become very limited. Maybe we could say Buddhahood is the ideal of a body truly, deeply and profoundly at peace with itself. And so to fill this out a bit more, there is the um, famous Tibetan teaching of the three bodies or the um, Trikaya. So this is a very important teaching in Buddhism and it shows what's possible uh, through practice. And it outlines three parallel dimensions the Buddha manifests in. So this is um, a depiction of three Buddhas um, symbolising the Trikaya. And there are different interpretations of the Trikaya teaching which share a lot in common. But what I'm going to do now is to outline briefly uh, below is mainly based on Sangharakshita's. So tree uh, translates as three, as in tree, ratna, and uh, kaya uh, roughly translates as the body. So the first um, dimension of the Buddha's body is his physical body, um, which we're most familiar with, his manifested personality. So Buddhahood on the human historical plane. So in our era, this is Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha, who was born in Lumbini in the foothills of the Himalayas, walked around a swathe of northern India, became Gautama the Buddha, and who died at Kusinagra in north India. So this is enlightenment at the level of the um, physical body, the body we're most familiar with in our culture. But he had to, his, his enlightenment played out in two other dimensions that we're probably less familiar with. The Sambhogakaya, um, which is in the area of the subtle energy body, really. Then this literally means the glorious or glorified body and represents the Buddhahood as manifesting on higher celestial planes, glorified archetypal, above and beyond the historical. So rather than physical, this is a realm of light, colour, energy and qualities such as fearlessness, compassion, equanimity and it's often associated with the um, Bodhisattva figures, the awakened beings which have been called the Sambhogakaya Buddhas. So the Bodhisattvas express dimensions of the awakened mind. And then the third um, body or dimension of the awakened Buddha is the Dharmakaya, or the body of truth. So this is a body, in, like the ultimate body really, um, the nature of reality. And Sangharaksha says this represents Buddhahood in its absolute essentiality, above both the historical and the archetypal plane, the true nature of reality as it is in itself beyond all concepts, shunyata, emptiness. So the Buddha is aligned and embodies the true nature of things. So it's a very famous teaching, this. um, And um, it allows the Buddha to be at the same time one with the Absolute and to be in the relative world for the benefit of sentient beings. So this is, um, I think it's a Western artist that's trying to sort of embody that too, really. You know, the the historical Buddha there. 
um, Sambhogakaya and um, the Dharmakaya, um, the world and beyond. Okay, so um, yeah, I'm coming to the end, last few minutes. So perhaps a human body at peace with itself relates to itself, others and the others and the world just as they truly are, without illusion. While seeing that such distinctions ultimately are illusory. Innate purity shines through unobstructed, with energies on all their different levels freely flowing. An energy that is wholeheartedly in pursuit of the good. Seeing the naked truth of reality, yata bhutam dashanam, seeing things as they really are. I came across this quote I really like from Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche, who's one of Sangharaksha's, who was one of Sangharaksha's teachers, which um, I think succinctly and beautifully contextualises the wonder behind everyday things, which includes our precious human form. So Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche said, Matter is a symbol of energy, and energy a symbol of emptiness. Matter is a symbol of energy, and energy a symbol of emptiness. So again, um, returning to my bedroom, the tiny spider and the torch, I now see that the mutant spider on the ceiling was really just one layer of illusion I'd seen through. But at the time, with the illusion not seen for what it was, the illusion was pretty scary. The spider on the wall, on the ceiling, was real and unquestioned. As Mark Twain said, I've lived through some terrible things in my life, some of which actually happened. So just as the spider on the ceiling was imagined to be something other than a shadow, I wonder too, to what extent do we project views and beliefs onto ourselves, others and the world? And how much of this really stands up to closer looking? What from a distance looks like a frightening snake on the road, on closer inspection, might be just a line of little ants. I wonder how much of what we project is causing the suffering and the wanting that weighs us down and closes the heart. For me, Buddhism questions assumptions I hadn't even considered questioning if I was aware of holding them in the first place. For me, Buddhism provides tools to help see the assumptions that make the world I live in. For me, Buddhism helps me cultivate the kindly awareness that enables me to see the assumptions I hold so their grip can loosen. The Tukaya teaching gives a vision of how profoundly at peace the human body can become. A human body that is one with the absolute body of truth. And from this seeing, only kindness makes sense anymore, as exemplified by the Buddha. A foot in the world and a foot beyond time and space, and the oppressions of old age, sickness and death. So I just want to end with a quote from um, Lama Govinda. Um, 
Okay, uh, so um, we can look at that slide instead. So I'll end with a quote from Lama Govinda, who is a spiritual friend of the um, Buddha. And um, this is what he said. The body is, so to stay... Sorry, the body is, so to say, the stage between heaven and earth on which the psychocosmic drama is enacted. For the knowing one, the initiate, it is the sacred stage of an unfathomably deep mystery play. Thank you.